First Corinthians chapter one, Paul has begun here his response to this church. He's heard through a letter and a delegation probably from this lady Chloe's household. Some of the things happening at the church, he is responding first to some of the divisions in the church. And one of the other major issues that he has, which he has just set up kind of where we left off, is that in this church, the idea of wisdom is something that's been a major source of the divisions, tying probably certain emphasis to some of these teachers and some saying, I'm Paul or Apollos or Jesus. And what's going to happen here from verse 17 in chapter 1, really all the way through the end of chapter 3, Paul's going to use the word for wisdom in the Greek is Sophia. He's going to use that 16 times. So he's talking about a spiritual type of wisdom and an earthly type of wisdom and how these people in this church have leaned towards the one, the negative type of wisdom has caused various problems in the church. So he's going to set up his discussion with a contrast. So verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amazing section here. If somebody just sent that to you in an email, it would be amazing. Uh, Obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. But Paul wants to kind of begin to point out this contrast. Again, loves these people. They are true believers. They know God. God has good things in them. But the things that need to be addressed still need to be addressed. And this idea of wisdom in the wrong fashion, he he sets up with a contrast. So again in 17, where he says, not the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There in that little section, you can't see it quite as clear in the English, where Paul says the wisdom of words is the wisdom of the Greek is logos. And then where he says in verse 18, the message of the cross, that word message there, is the logos of the cross. So what Paul does is he says, look, we have a contrast here. We have the logos of wisdom of the world. The, the wisdom that the world has, wisdom of words, 
and we have the logos of the cross. And those two things are in contrast. If I lean on the one, I will make the other of no effect. And he, he begins to put this contrast out there for them because he wants a couple things to be made clear. Number one, he wants them to know that the message of the cross is not a new type of wisdom. The Greek word, uh, Sophia, had the idea of like a philosophy. What I'm preaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not just one of the philosophies of life. And that's how generally the wisdom of the world looks at it. People think, oh, that's something that you believe, and that's nice. Uh, you know, if, if you were at the zoo and somebody a crowd of people come screaming by you and you say, what's going on? And they say, the tiger got out of the cage. You wouldn't say, that's what you believe. That's nice. <laughs> because if it's a fact, it's something that becomes essential. Right? So uh, the, one of the problems is they could talk about Christianity, the message of the cross, as just some type of word, a philosophy of life. It's like one of the things out there that everybody can just kind of think about. They can debate. They can treat it as such. But what Paul is saying is, no, the message of the cross is not on par with human wisdom. These two things are not equal. If, if I speak the wisdom of words, the cross of Christ is made of no effect. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The wisdom of words relates to human intellect and reasoning power. The things that I can understand with my personal mind or comprehension. The message of the cross is an act of divine revelation. Totally different. It's not just something I can think about with my mind. It's bigger than that. The message of the cross relates to all the truth that the cross contains. And the wisdom of words hears the message of the cross and it considers it foolishness, Paul says in 18. The word foolishness in there, really, it's, it's a stronger term. It's absurdity or madness. When I hear this message about this guy, he says, Paul links it to this group, those who are perishing, when they hear this message that there was a dude who was born, his name was Jesus, 30 years, nobody actually kind of knew who he was, but he was the son of God, born of a virgin, never really traveled very far, did incredible miracles, was crucified, rose again three days later, ascended into heaven, is returning. That message just sounds like a fairy tale. Or maybe at best, it's a nice philosophy of life. But it's not a fact that God has revealed. See, those are two very different things. And the wisdom of words relates to, again, human reasoning. The message of the cross relates to this divine message that's been given to us. So when a person's only using their human reasoning, they hear this, and it's crazy. But, Paul says in 18, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It becomes to them something that works in their lives. And any of us here that are saved, somewhere along that line, that message became the power of God in your life. 
we can hear that message as just word, or we can receive it in word and power. Paul would say to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. You, that's why people can hear the same message. The gospel can come to you in two ways, in word or in word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And those are two very different things. One is a nice idea that people can think about and talk about, roll around in their human mind and intellect. The other is a fact that needs to be immediately responded to. It's like seeing the tiger in the hallway. This is way different than talking about what would happen if that scenario were true. The two things, very different. And the message of the cross, Paul says, that, that's something that those who just want to work in the wisdom of words, they see it as madness. It's absurdity. But even that was recognized by God. Notice in 19, he says, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul quotes from Isaiah 29, 14. The context there, actually, in that whole section, is a warning against not trying to match wits with God. And he's making it clear that the folly of the cross, how people see this message as ridiculous, is how God brings out what he, would predicted, what he predicted he would do in the Old Testament, which is bring to nothing human wisdom. Show that human wisdom is not the end-all, be-all. And it isn't the savior of mankind. He, ex he extends that by calling out some of the learned individuals of their day and age. He says, where is the wise? The, the wise has the idea of the philosopher of the day and age. Where is the scribe? The scribe was the learned person in the law. Where is the disputer of this age? The disputer was the eloquent debater, maybe the lawyer of the day and age. And his, his question is, so here's all these individuals. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? What has their wisdom brought? Let's you stack up the wise people in all the particular days and ages that human beings have li has lived in. And where, where does their wisdom take us? Does it get us to God? It doesn't, actually. Paul talked about this in Romans 1. Does it, does it get people to salvation? Does it lead people to eternal life? Had, had the plan of God been found out through human history, through human wisdom, people figured it out on their own, through their own intellect and through their own ability? And his whole point is, no. So where, where is all of human learning now in light of the message of the cross? What was their contribution to God deciding to send his own son in human flesh to take on the sin of the world, to die for the ungodly, to show us that he was reconciling the world to himself? Where did human wisdom make that happen? Or how did it contribute anything helpful to the process? Nobody was sitting around giving God ideas. Hey, we think this would be a good idea of how you save the world. Paul says, all the wisdom of words, everything you want to talk about, how, how did that help the scenario here? What did that bring us to? It didn't bring us to anything. 
Notice 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. God set it up that way the whole, the whole time. You weren't going to get there yourself. You needed him to help you. And he says, and it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The message of the cross, this is Paul's point, was, is not the same as just humans thinking things out and reasoning it for themselves, debating something or philosophizing about things. The message of the cross is a message about God from God. Human beings couldn't figure it out on their own. They never would have got there by themselves. God had to reveal who he was and what he was doing. It's not how we would act if we were intelligent. It's how God has already acted in human history. And it's a declaration of that fact. It's not something that is to be debated by humans or scrutinized or held up for exam by human intellect. It is something that has happened and God has revealed it to us. That's why Paul is going to say in chapter 2, verse 1, he's literally going to call it the testimony of God. Like you have a testimony, how, how God worked in your life. Well, this is God's testimony about himself. This is who I am and this is what I've done. That's the message of the cross. It's a declaration about a fact that has happened. And notice, Paul says that it pleased God through the foolishness of that message to save those who believe on the message, not our message, on his message. It's God's message about himself. The word for preach there in the Greek is referring not, not to the art of preaching itself, but to the content, the message of what is preached. And the message of this crucified Messiah, the content itself has power. That's what Paul's saying. The early Christians, those who were saved, were swept off their feet by the revelation of something. They didn't all, from these different areas and backgrounds, begin to think certain logical thoughts that led them all to the same conclusion. What happened was somebody showed up and said, I was there when a dude who died rose again. And he's God. And he's coming back and he died for our sins. They went around the world and declared that God had come as the son of man, died as the lamb of God, and was coming back as the king of kings. And it didn't matter what you thought about it. It was a declaration about something God had done in human history. And it had nothing to do with human reason, per se. Human reason would see, as it still does, the central things of the message of the cross is foolishness. The incarnation? Try to reason your way through that. The virgin birth? The miracles of Jesus Christ? His death, not just as an example, but as a propitiation? Making atonement? Not just being a good symbol of somebody who does something nice, but paying the price for sin? The resurrection, Paul got laughed at when he talked about the resurrection. A human being being risen from the dead 
as something greater than it was. The resurrection is a very unique doctrine in human history. A lot of people have ideas about what happens when you die, but you, they're all worse. You're like a weird ghost floating places, or you turn your ancestors, or you float away into nothing, or you join the universe. Like if you actually begin to study what other, other people believe about life after this life, there's nothing like the Christian message where you're resurrected and you're a better you. And then to say that he's coming again, like all those things, human reason begins to work through them and rejects them. But they are the message of the cross. They're a declaration about what God has done, is doing, and will still do. And it's important for us, especially if we fear as we share this message, that unsaved people might hear it and consider us to be absurd or mad. What God is telling us here is that people will consider your message foolish. This is going to happen. Human reason will hear this declaration and consider it foolish. Consider it madness. Consider it to be crazy. And the second part is, that's actually part of what it pleased him to do. And it's his message about him, not my message about me. I don't have the right to change his message about him. It is who he says he is and what he once said about him. So as we share the message of the cross, that's where the power of God resides. Not in the wisdom of the world, but he saves us. And it is through that power, again, at the end of 18, that God works what he wants to work in human lives. And it's not a power just to make people smarter. It's a power to change them. What are we told about Peter's sermon in the book of Acts? Where he stood up and he preached about Jesus Christ. We're not told that people were shocked by his eloquence or loved the lighting and stage set up or felt comfortable in the nice community of people while he spoke to them. What we're told is when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The power of God works in human hearts because God still has secret allies in human hearts. He created human beings. He knows who we are and what we are. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what mankind is. He knows what's in man. And he says, when you share my message, those secret allies, they're working in human hearts. Because the message of the cross has power. It enters where his message works in power. And it can change human hearts and lives. Ole Housby is a writer in his book, Religious or Christian. He says this, the Bible does not say a great deal by way of explaining the cross. And what it does say does not tend to solve the mystery of the cross. It shows both Jews and Gentiles that the cross is not only in harmony with God's previous revelation, but it is the fulfillment and completion thereof. It can, however, scarcely be said that it is this biblical explanation of the cross which gives the helpless sinner consolation and peace. Peace. 
It is not the explanation of the cross, but the cross as a fact, which is so decisive in its importance. For man cannot be comforted and helped by anything else or less than by entering into fellowship with God and living in his presence. We cannot be helped either by explanation or enlightenment or by the words or works of God, but only by God himself, only by meeting God and being permitted to live in fellowship with him. I don't have to reason my way into meeting someone. Just believe they exist and get introduced. You know, I would throw out there to my doubting friends, if anybody's out there wondering about Christ or the message of the cross, you do know there's plenty of facts out there beyond our comprehension, things that are real that we don't fully understand with our human intellect, but they're still real, and all different types of them we have to shape our lives to. It's not unreasonable for the divine being of the universe who enacts a plan to solve the most complicated problem in the universe, human sin, to do it in a way that's a little confusing to human intellect. But he is who he says he is, still reasonable. And the message of the cross, that God loves us and he gave himself for us, that Jesus Christ took the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. It's true. That's the message that has power. And it has power because as a Christian, I can say that, and then I can say, go home and ask him to make himself real to you, because he's alive. And it's a power that no other message has, no other God, no other declaration, no other philosophy in the world or in the universe could say the same thing, that your maker will show up and make himself real to you. Now, most of the time, we don't actually want that to happen. We're trying to escape it. Because if it happens, life's never the same again. And the power of God is related to the message of God. But Paul says, the wisdom of words, the logos of the philosophies of the world, they never figured this out. They didn't contribute to it. In fact, it pleased God to shame them, to show them that they are not, in fact, all that we need, that we need him. And he did it through the foolishness of preaching. We just share the message, even if it's considered absurd, even if it's considered mad, because that's the power of God to salvation. That's why Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I know it's the power of God to salvation. His righteousness is revealed there. Now, 22, he says he's going to address the bastions of human reason in that world. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. We know the Jews des desired a particular miraculous supernatural sign or experience. Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given it except to the sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. They were always asking for a sign. He, the Jews had more signs than any other people group in human history. 
but they were still asking for some unique spiritual experience. The Greeks, he said, seek after wisdom. They loved and valued human eloquence, reason, philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. They, both Jews and Greeks, had their own form of wisdom. Jews wanted to see the supernatural experience. The Greeks wanted human reason, logic, philosophy. And what he says is, both of you are demanding that God come to you on your terms. And he says, God's not going to accommodate his message to your terms. God is going to show up and he's told us what his message is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the message of the cross becomes a stumbling block, a scandal to the Jews. It's scandalous. This, this is our Messiah crucified on a cross and foolishness, absurdity to the Greeks. And it still is in our day and age in many ways to many people. It's the reason why still many want to change or accommodate or save Jesus from his own message. Many in the church then, because they know that if the message is spoken as it is in truth, the message of Christ, God's own message about himself, if they share those things, people aren't going to like it. They're going to see it as foolish. It is going to go against what they believe or think or their philosophy of the world and how life is supposed to be. And so what they try to do is accommodate it, shift it, change it a little bit. It was Peter's problem when Jesus told Peter, I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, not you, Lord. And what does Jesus have to say? Get behind me, Satan. Not Peter, he saw the satanic influence there. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. There's still plenty of people out there that are trying to save Jesus from his own message. Making the same mistake. But the world's not going to like it. There's only one place the power of God comes to them, and that's in God's own message about himself. I'm not here to rescue God from his own message we can be tempted to do the same thing. And there are plenty out there who would say they believe in him that are feeling the same. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine just how scandalous and crazy and offensive this was, this message back then to these believing Jews and Gentiles. But it's becoming that way in our culture as well. But it was even more so then. Yet what Paul says is, it's a stumbling block and it's foolishness, 24 again. But to those who are called, notice, both Jews and Greeks, there are people saved out of both of these, these kind of bastions of human wisdom. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are some people who have found the message. And to find the message is to find the messenger. It's Christ himself. And they find him to be both the power and the wisdom of God, power to change them, the wisdom to actually solve the issues of life. The question is very simple. 
Is the message of the cross divine? Is it from God about God? Is it God's own testimony about himself? Well, if it is, then it doesn't need our help. I don't need to change it. I don't need to shift it. I don't need to make it into something that's more palatable for the culture. If it's from God, then it does not need any interference from me. It is sufficient then. To change it becomes an offense both to God and it becomes a tool in the hand of Satan because that's what he wants. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 say, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We speak the simple truth. Sometimes it can seem, I think, prideful or presumptive to claim salvation or new birth. You know, some people, they get offended at those types of things. They, they'd rather say that, you know, I would like to be changed or I would like to know God or, you know, I'm on a journey with my belief or my salvation. But the reality is it's untrue to yourself to not actually say what is true. If somebody asks me, are you married? I don't say, I'm on a journey with my marriage. <laughs> if my wife heard me say that, I might be on a journey with my marriage, right? <laughs> the, that's, it's not more humble to act like something that is true is not true. And, and people can be offended at those types of things, but the reality is, if, if you ask me if I'm married, I say yes. So if you ask me, am I saved? I can say yes. Do I know Jesus Christ? Yes. Am I born again? Yes. It's a fact of experience. It's not a philosophy. It's not a wisdom of words. It's not something we're, we're holding out trying to think through. It is something we can either say yes or no to. And if you're doubting and you're thinking these things through, I would encourage you to look at it and see what Christ says about himself. Have you repented? You can say yes or no to that. Are you saved? You can say yes or no to that. Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Because Paul sums it up and says in 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's just playing with the language, what they see as foolish or weak, what human reason will see as foolish and weak. And God is neither. It's wisdom and it's strength. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, powerless wisdom or foolish power, it was and is still a fateful choice. The one combination that is not an option is the wisdom of the world plus the power of God. That's not an option. The option is what Jesus says about himself, what God's testimony is of God the Son. That's the only message with power. And if it's considered foolish, that's how God was pleased to make it all happen. And if I stand here as a preacher, he says, well, it's through the foolishness of preaching that he makes it happen. That was how he designed it himself. So God is still wiser and stronger than men, yet in his own way. 
Do we trust him or do we trust ourselves? Do we believe and trust his foolish message or the words of worldly wise? The Christian message is not unreasonable. It's just conflicting with worldly reason. It's not unreasonable, though. And now Paul is going to expand on that. It's not only their message that would seem foolish to this wisdom of the world. It is literally the recipients of the message. Look at 26. He said, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's why. Then no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul's explained, look, the message is an offense. Now he shows, oh, yeah, and you're an offense, too. <laughs> the recipients of that message, they're, an also, they're also an offense to the world. This was an, this was an evidence of their calling. But, uh, you know, the simple idea is if, if, this was, if this was true, then worldly reasoning would be, then how come the best or the smartest and the most noble all don't agree with it. Why is it you people? You Corinthians. Because in the world, it's most often the wise and the mighty and the noble that win. In basic outcome of human nature, if we just roll with regular cause and effect, fishermen and tax collectors don't get the upper hand on the rich and wealthy and Pharisees of the day. How does that happen? Well, it's only by the grace of God and the power of God. That doesn't happen in the natural world. What happened in the early church was only possible through the power and the gift of God. And today, we still feel this pressure. You see it everywhere, honestly. That's why the church caters so much to the gifted people of the world. We're easily tricked into thinking that God's message or our fellowships will do better if we had more wise, more mighty, and more noble, AKA more actors, sports stars, politicians, and CEOs speaking our message. You know, a person who's, who's a sports star or an actor, they get say, we wanna put them everywhere. Now, why don't we just want to take the godly grandma and throw her out there? Oh, because we don't actually believe the message has the power. We believe we, we got to help, help the message out. And if they see this individual, then they'll know. And what Paul said, actually, God's doing the exact opposite thing. It's funny. It's happened in every day and age. I was reading G. Campbell Morgan's commentary, and he said, he could remember a day when churches were judged by how many carriages were parked outside. Well, that church had 10 or 15 or 20 carriages. That must be a really, you know, influential church. I guess you could relate it to, you know, Teslas or something nowadays. So, you know, we can, we can all fall into this trap. It happens in church-wide. It happens personally. 
We can wish that we ourselves were more wise or mighty or noble. A little more beauty, a little more money, a little more fame, a little more intellect. Well, really, God knows it would just be to our ruin. And we would just steal his glory. And Paul doesn't say here that there's not any, simply not many. It's not many people wise, not many people mighty, not many people noble. Because when that happens, when you have those things, Jesus tells us we trust in those things instead of him. That's why he says it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they trust in their riches. That rich young ruler that came to him and wanted to know how he could have eternal life. He walked away sorrowful. Not because Jesus was intellectually wrong. He was sad because he knew Jesus was right. But he couldn't give up his riches. He trusted in those things. And the mighty and the intelligent and the rich still tend to trust in their riches. They don't want to give those things up. G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called Orthodoxy. Actually, if you're a skeptic and you're listening, I would encourage you, get the book, G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy. He himself, huge skeptic, until he began to realize so many of his thoughts and criticisms were so contradictory. And he found himself working through those issues, and eventually they led him to Christ. But he made this observation I thought was unique, where he said, Only the Christian church can offer any rational objection to a complete confidence in the rich. For she has maintained from the beginning that the danger was not in man's environment, but in man. Further, she has maintained that if we come to talk of a dangerous environment, the most dangerous environment of all is the commodious environment. That's what Jesus says. The more you have, the easier it is to trust in those things instead of him. That's why there's not many rich, mighty, noble, wise that will come to him. Because they're going to trust themselves. If the message of the cross isn't true, because the cross says man deserves judgment. Because not just of what he's done, but what he is. Broken on the inside even the strongest and the wealthiest and the wisest. If the message of the cross isn't true, then why aren't the wisest and the strongest and the wealthiest better than the rest of us? Why aren't they something more? They would be. But what God wants to be seen is himself. So he didn't choose to manifest himself through the world's glories or through what they would hold up and glory in. God is actively looking to put to shame the unregenerate wisdom of the world. So don't get caught up in it. Don't find yourself working to please the thing that God's not looking to lift up. The not many are simply those who see their gifts and realize, this doesn't get me anywhere. I can't actually trust in my intellect. can't actually trust in my money. can't actually trust in my talents. They won't save me. I need to trust in him. And there's not many that are willing to do that when they have those things. 
Jesus said in Luke 10, 21, the hour in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus rejoiced that this is the way God wanted to do things. So many turned to trust in him because they knew they needed it. The summation, again, 29, why why it worked this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. God desires that no flesh would glory. Glory basically means to boast in his presence. That every human being should recognize that anything good in us is actually due to him. My intellect, I can't judge God with. He gave it to me. My money, I can't trust instead of him. He gave it to me. I'm simply a steward of it. My physical talent and ability, you're like, I worked hard for that gold medal. Okay, well, you could have been born with one leg. You wouldn't have got the gold medal then. You know, like you, we, we put ourselves and our own strength forward. We trust in those things. But the reality is I don't have them outside of God. I didn't actually choose my own life. I didn't choose where I came in the world. I didn't choose my own gifts and talents and abilities. These things have all been given to us. We could be more or less good stewards of them, but I didn't choose them. So I can't trust them in the end. So no flesh can glory in his presence. The message of the cross will never be popular because it removes all human pride when seen correctly. And Satan will try to twist the message of the cross. He won't just straight deny it. He's going to try to twist it so that it can still include human pride on some level. Again, let's accommodate the message of the cross so that it can include our morals, so that it can include our value of intellect, so that it can include our view of money. That's happening all over the place. Unfortunately, that's not his message about himself. And those who want to hold on to their pride, whatever form it takes, will resist that message because it does away with it. I can't trust just my intellect. Can't trust my own righteousness. Can't trust what I've earned on my own. I have to give up all of it and trust in Jesus. And the message of the cross is not a philosophy again. It's a reality. It's a reality like New Zealand's a reality or wintertime's a reality or Julius Caesar's a reality or whatever you want to say is any other reality in the world. But it's different in the fact that it is the reality that all other realities will conform to and be judged by. That's why people don't like it. Because if I get this reality wrong, it changes the reality that I want. If I'm wrong on this one, I'm accountable to this one. If I'm wrong on the crowd of people running out of the zoo, afraid of the tiger, I might get mauled. At worst, I get killed. If I'm wrong on the message of the cross, then I need to fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. That's, that's why anybody who wants to hold on to any shred of pride has has to either resist this message or surrender to it and allow it to be the power of God to salvation. 
It's why it's rejected most often by prideful men and women. Doesn't matter how religious you are or what culture you are. It's mostly those who are not wise or mighty or noble because they realize I don't have anything else to trust in. This is the message tells you. The recipients tell you. And he says, but of him, as he closes it up, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God's wisdom works all these ends in Christ Jesus. You, you want to trust in this wisdom, these philosophies of your day and age. You're going to take the message of the cross and put it on even par with these things. You're going to get into trouble. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the power of God. And this is how God said that he would bring the wisdom of the world to nothing. He had always said he was going to do it. And the wisdom of the world never added at all to his plan, to what he accomplished, to what he has already lived out in human history. And it's that declaration that has the power to change people's hearts and lives. And you and I, again, should trust the simple message of the cross because it's God's message about himself. And that's where the power resides. And then his wisdom is made known there because of him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus. We have everything that we could need in him. Again, the world has its own versions of these things. The world has its own version of wisdom, which is seen in its various levels of education, has its own version of righteousness, its own societal morals or philosophies. If you stick to your philosophy, you can have your own form of righteousness one way or another. Has its own form of sanctification, self-defined purposes, what my life is okay to be set apart to, either this or that, what I can give myself to. Has its own form of redemption. It's not much. I guess if you die full of degrees and money and sex, you did it. Right? That's what we end up having. We don't like saying it like that because it makes it obvious that life has to be more. But that's the reality of things. Yet for the believer who has heard the message, believes it, and comes to know Christ Jesus, not just intellectually understand the philosophy, but meet the person in the power of God. Paul was never reasoned in the salvation. We remember that. He was an incredible intellect. Nobody could convince him otherwise, except for Jesus Christ. And when he showed up in his life, it wasn't about the intellect anymore. It was an event. It wasn't that Jesus became understandable to him. It was that Jesus happened to him. And once Jesus happened to him, then his intellect came underneath the authority and his wisdom was changed, was shifted. It learned Christ in a new way. And so Christ becomes the fullness for the believer. 
John 1.16 says, Of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Colossians 1.19 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. What does that mean practically, personally? Well, it means that I don't trust my own wisdom anymore. He is my fullness. I trust him in his wisdom. I trust what he has done. I trust what he says. I trust where he leads me. I trust the way he rolls out the plan. Where I lack, he fills it up. He becomes my fullness. He becomes my righteousness. If somebody comes to me and says, you don't love God like you should, you don't serve him like you should, you're still a selfish individual, you're more worldly than you, des- than you should be, you, you can just go down the list. I could say, all those things are true, and I should not be able to go to heaven or have a relationship with God, except that I don't stand in my own righteousness. I am now in another's. And you can't say any of those things about him. I don't stand in my own fullness. I stand in his. He's become for us our sanctification. He gives me my life purpose, what I'm set apart to, what the point of it is. I don't have to look at my life and say, I wish I was something different because he didn't make me in a way where I couldn't live out his purposes. Like somehow I can't serve him the right way because I'm not intelligent enough or smart enough or have enough money or enough physical talent or ability in one way or another. Oh, my sanctification is in him. He's cleansed me. He's given me purpose. I'm set apart for him. And he becomes our redemption. He's the one who bought us back. He's the one who purchased our salvation. We were slaves on the slave block to sin. No way we could get off. And he paid the price, the ransom price for us, to redeem us. And I would still be a slave, even if it's a slave to things that the world holds up in high esteem, like intellect or nobility of blood or physical might. He who sins, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. But if you submit to him and his wisdom, and you believe the truth, then the truth sets you free. And there's redemption in Jesus Christ that you can never have on your own. You can never have outside of him. And maybe God knew it needed to be somebody like Paul who said these things and not me. (laughs) You stack up the intellects of the world and Let's just say I'm not in the 10%, right? <laughs> the, the reality is this, is, this is the dude who could sit there and have those intellectual conversations with the intellects of the world. But he was saying, I, I already know. That's an empty hole to dive in. The message of the cross is totally different. So where does all this leave us, 31? It leaves us with what the scripture says. It is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
Where does it leave me? It does not leave me boasting in myself, that's for sure. If these things are true, if the message that God has that is both the most difficult and the most wonderful message in the world, that man deserves to be condemned because of sin, but has been already dealt with in Christ Jesus so that we can be forgiven and receive in his grace what we never deserve or could get on our own. I don't have anything to boast about in me, but I can boast in Christ Jesus. I can boast in Christ Jesus. And you know what? The wisdom of the world will see that as foolish until it becomes the power of God in their lives. But we should never be ashamed because God is not going to change his message about himself to accommodate an unregenerate, unregenerate world and their own wisdom. Because then the cross of Christ is made of none effect. That's not where the power of God resides. And in the end, all glorying is going to be glorying in the Lord. Let's stand. We're going to pray. If you're here and you know God's working on your heart and he's to reveal himself to you, you want to be saved, come down and speak with one of us afterwards. But for the rest of us, let's praise him because he deserves it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would build in us a greater boldness in your word, courage to trust in it and in what you say of yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for your power in our own lives. We all know it in some measure. We wouldn't be your sons or your daughters without it. And I pray, Lord, that you allow us each to know it in greater measure in our lives. We praise you, Lord, for what you've done. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.